What's going on, podcasting world? Welcome back to another episode of the Core Consult RX podcast. I'm joined by Cole Swanson. I'm happy to be here. It's an honor. He's, yeah, it's good to have you back on the show. Yeah, you said it like I was a guest or something. I know. I was trying to go at that, and I couldn't think of anything else to say <laughs> after that, so my improv was just off. This is a nice studio. Yeah. Well, we've been, me and my co-host have been uh, working on it for a while. <laughs> Three years. Something like that. Yeah. How's it going, man? Doing all right? Yeah, man. How about you? Living the dream. Mm. Something like that. Something like that. How's work going? It's great. You still doing the working from home thing? Yeah, going into clinics some. Are you? Mm-hmm, which is fine, but um, yeah, mostly from home. You getting the opportunity to like learn a lot in, from the neurology side of things? Yeah, I mean, I feel like I know a lot about things that I definitely was not well-versed on before. These random specialty meds, like even just looking at, you know, what we're talking about today is IBD, so it's a GI um, issue, which, which I don't work specifically in, but I'm much more familiar with these drugs now than I was before, which that's, is cool. That's cool. Because, you know, I got a baseline knowledge of the rest, and now I have a good to baseline to good knowledge of the specialty stuff fair to quite fair fair, fair to quite fair <laughs> or to um fulminant we'll get there ah, yeah. i see what you did there just yeah. sneak in the uh the old terminology it's called a segue it's amazing so inflammatory bowel disease more uh specifically one of the uh, particular subtypes ulcerative colitis so we have talked about this it's a while ago. According to our records, 2019. We've done very little research to make sure that's validated, but... And there's been some updated stuff since then. Yes. So we're just going to kind of take this opportunity to run back through it and uh, hopefully come up with uh, maybe a little bit more simplistic way of looking at like the treatment options and things like that. But we will see. I, I was. It's easy to follow, I think, now. You think so? Yeah. Yeah. I tried. I made that algorithm, and I was like, I need to make this real simple so that my students don't assassinate me after class. Well, anytime you throw in the, the specialty drugs and the MABs and all that sort mm. of thing, it starts to confuse people, so they just kind of ignore that. Mm-hmm. But it seems to be more um, prominent, like just in moderate UC, which we'll get there. So I think that, I mean, I I guess that's what I work in, but I see them all the time. Yeah. And never mind. I'll save it for later. Okay. <laughs> All right, so inflammatory bowel disease, obviously being the umbrella term, um, it's basically this chronic, um, and or even could be remitting, relapsing um, intestinal inflammation. Um, patients will often have uh, diarrhea, um, potentially abdominal pain, depending on what subtype. Um, and the one that we're going to kind of focus on today is ulcerative colitis. So this is where the inflammatory um, condition is more isolated to like the mucosal lining, maybe the submucosal. Um, and it's typically going to be confined to the, the rectum and the colon. Uh, and so we don't really see any kind of... Um, any kind of inflammation going past like the terminal ileum into the small intestine. Uh, it, that's more so when we get into like Crohn's disease, which is a little bit deeper into that mucosal layers. And then uh, basically can go from the G like the entire GI tract from mouth to anus, if you will. Um, they always, to, they always like to say that I, mouth to anus. I know, and I feel like I'm saying something I'm not supposed to, but I'm like, it's in the textbook. Anytime Crohn's is mentioned, you have to mention mouth to anus. I feel like my mom's going to like ground me after saying that. <laughs> But now the, uh, that's, so we'll save Crohn's. We'll do Crohn's separately because these are pretty complex and for, you know, just for y'all sanity, we're going to go ahead and split those up. We'll do Crohn's another day. Yeah. So and people gonna, get them confused a lot, but, um, there's, there's pretty clear differences. It's easy to, easy to remember if you, if you really just, you know, focus on where it's happening. Listen right? to the soothing sounds of our words and then you'll know. That's the best way to do it. Yeah. 
Yeah. There you go. But uh, both uh, disease states have a pretty complex uh, etiology, pretty complex reasons why it happens. There's a lot of stuff going on. Um, so for one, which I think a lot of people um, think of, is the immunologic um, uh, situation. So it, it's autoimmune, can be autoimmune. Um, there's an inappropriate T-cell response to the intestinal gut flora. Um, you can have overproduction or overexpression of inflammatory mediators like tumor necrosis factor, which plays a big role in some of the new drugs. Um, also overexpression of interferons. Also infection. Um, you can have a loss of tolerance to or altered normal flora. So you can have overgrowth of bacteria. Uh, the bacteria can produce toxins and result in infection. Or I guess infection can cause it, I guess, I guess it'd be more accurate. Yeah. Um, also genetics. So uh, with twins, there's a pretty significant concordan uh, concordance rate. Um, and there's several genetic biomarkers that have been established. So it, it's pretty clear that there is a genetic basis to these as well. From a diet standpoint, because um, there is some environmental factors at play as well. So from a diet standpoint, uh, Western diet does seem to be something that can kind of exacerbate the issue, if nothing else. If not, maybe even cause it. So typically when our Western diets, we think of uh, all the, the ways we're not supposed to eat. We have low fiber. Uh, we have high, simple sugars. Um, we have a lot of additives and we have a lot of refined foods because we like it quick. And unfortunately, uh, we get some of the not so healthy options. Uh, and because a lot of those types of like additives, refined foods, those types of things can lead to kind of like systemic inflammation and it can kind of um, exacerbate the issue. Um, nicotine. So nicotine is a weird one because it actually depends on if the person has Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis. Because if it's Crohn's disease, uh, nicotine can actually make that condition worse, which is kind of what we always expect smoking or nicotine to kind of do is exacerbate the issue. However, ulcerative colitis, it's actually protective. And so it's something that uh, obviously we're not encouraging patients to smoke. I mean, we'll keep that in our back pocket, but we typically only kind of bring this up if a patient has been smoking. Their their ulcerative colitis is you know being maintained, and it's not they're not having any flare ups or anything. They've been in remission for a while, and then they decide they want to go undergo smoking cessation. Well, in that particular case, then we do have to at least be cognizant of the fact that it, they could start to have a flare-up because they lose that protective property of the nicotine. So interestingly, nicotine has been looked at like a couple of times, transdermal nicotine in use in UC. Um, there was one trial from 1996 with a whopping 10 patients um, showing that uh, nicotine patches were a reasonable alternative to steroids. So in mild to moderate UC, do with that what you will. Um, and then another very small trial from 1998 stated that they would be useful um, over a five-week study length. I'm not necessarily recommending it, but I think it's interesting that it's been looked at. They just don't do trials like they used to back in the 90s. <laughs> I know. Ten patients. Ten people done, you're published. You know what easy that would be now? <laughs> it was published. Go get ten people on Facebook and you just, yeah, yeah you're in a trial now. Hey, everybody, put on a nicotine patch and mm -hmm. text me. <laughs> All right, results were crappy. <laughs> published. Published. <laughs> put that on your resume. Count it. Uh, Medication-wise... <laughs> getting right back on track. Um, medications, uh, NSAIDs can uh, potentially trigger uh, disease flare-ups. So obviously NSAIDs, they can decrease some of the infl inflammatory markers and things like that. However, you're also decreasing the prostaglandin formation, um, especially the non-selective NSAIDs. You're decreasing this prostaglandin um, synthesis and the, the prostaglandins are GI protective um, and renal protective as well. And so 
yes, you can decrease the inflammation side of things, that COX-2 side, but the COX-1 side where you have all the GI protective properties of prostaglandins and all that also can be disrupted. So that can cause some issues. Um, plus with prolonged use, we have to worry about things like ulcers and all that good stuff. Um, medications that can potentially uh, have diarrhea as a side effect. So obviously every, any medication potentially has that in the, uh, the old adverse uh, effects list, but some like high-dose augmentin, there's certain things that we kind of think of and we go, yeah, that's causing diarrhea, yeah. colchicine. Mm-hmm. Um, there's things like that that are going to cause issues. Um, and so if we have a, an agent like that and then we can potentially discontinue that agent, depending on the patient's comorbidities and whatnot, that, that can also help. Um, the psychological aspect. So there's a huge kind of correlation between uh, gut health and mental health. Um, And that's something that whether the gut affects the mental health or the mental health affects the gut health. um, There's a, I'm not even like versed in enough to give you the, all the, you know, ins and outs of that. And I I don't even know if they truly understand it to its complexity, but there is a a big, uh, association there. And so when you have patients that are undergoing stress, anxiety, depression, um, that's going to put them at risk for a flare up from their inflammatory bowel disease as well. Um, especially ulcerative colitis seems to be more prone to mental health issues causing a flare up. Yeah. If, um, if diarrhea plays a role, then I think anyone who's played competitive sports probably understands the link between anxiety and uh, mm-hmm. a nervous stomach. You get know those, what I mean? Get those uh, serotonin receptors going. Mm-hmm. Like, I am nervous for the game. Also, I'll be right back. <laughs> <laughs> Give me 20 minutes. <laughs> 20 minutes. I'm going to warm up. I'll see you guys in a minute. Uh, um, too much. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, characteristics and presentation, which we've already kind of mentioned, but it, it's important because there's a, all of these are pretty much uh, distinct from Crohn's um, when it comes to UC. So we mentioned, obviously, chronic inflammation primarily in the rectum and the colon, which is different than Crohn's. Um, no small intestine or transmural involvement. Um, they, it's continuous, continuous lesions and inflammation versus Crohn's, which can be kind of split up uh, with some normal, uh, some normal intestines in between them. Crypt abscesses are pretty exclusive to UC. Um, there's also no ileal involvement, like Mike said, but no fistulas. And then the appearance is not the, um, the, um, standard cobblestone appearance like you see in Crohn's. So those are cobblestone appearance is very distinct to Crohn's and then the whole GI tract. That's, those are the two ways that you could remember Crohn's versus UC. Um, and then UC has, uh, kind of acute exacerbations that are followed by a remission phase, uh, with UC. So what you're going to see in a patient who has it, you may see rectal bleeding depending on the severity, um, with frequent stools, mucus discharge from the rectum, which sounds terrible, um, abdominal tenderness possibly, which isn't isn't unique to to UC, actually more common in Crohn's, um, fever and weight loss you can see as well. Um, and, and Cole's pretty much gone through all the different you know the differences of them, but when it comes to kind of why other than just quality of life why we care about treating either of these um there, there's several complications that can happen if if we just kind of leave ulcerative colitis um on its natural track if you will so we have to worry about things like toxic megacolon um we have to worry about increased risk of colorectal carcinoma 
um, potential GI hemorrhage. Um, we have to worry about uh, patients developing iron deficiency anemia. Um, obviously, the psychosocial issues that can uh, be a factor as well. If a patient's having all these different things that are affecting quality of life, their mental health is going to potentially decline as well. Um, so there's a lot of kind of complications that can overall either put the patient's life in jeopardy um, or at least just make their quality of life significantly decreased. Right. Um, as far as like the severity scoring systems, there are several of them that are kind of available. They have like the uh, Mayo score for ulcerative colitis. They have the True Love and Wits criteria. That's the one I like. That <laughs> um, just sounds cool. I, I'm assuming True Love is somebody's name. Um, I wasn't assuming that. Do you think True Love is just like... No, take yeah. it for what it is, you know? I feel like Wits has got to be a really good friends with True Love. Which is a weird last name, but you know, it is what it is. They get along. True Love and Wit sounds like a rom com. They're compatible. They're compatible. It's yeah. fine. Yeah. <laughs> they made a whole scoring system together. Okay. Don't don't judge them. <laughs> um, and so there's various things we have to kind of watch for as far as like you know what makes them mild or severe or, or even so severe that it becomes uh, fulminant. Um, and so we won't go through too much of like the different scoring criteria and stuff because there's not any that's like the set standard um, amongst guidelines and all that. But to kind of give you some very simple classifications, um, when we typically think of mild, we're thinking like fewer than four stools per day. Um, could it, could potentially have a little bit of blood in the stool, maybe not, um, but you're not really going to have any kind of like systemic disturbance. Um, you're going to have a normal erythrocyte sedimentation rate, so no signs of like you know chronic inflammation and things like that. Um, moderate, you're typically thinking of more than four stools per day, um, and still a kind of minimal systemic disturbance. So the, a lot of times we even classify it as like mild, moderate, cause it's kind of hard to distinguish those unless you're just very adamant about counting the number of stools per day. Um, severe is when you have like more than six stools per day. Usually there's blood present. Um, and then evidence of systemic disturbance. Um, it could be patients present with fever, tachycardia, um, you know, signs of anemia, things like that. And then when you get past like severe and you actually get to fulminant, you know, ulcerative colitis, you know, medical emergency, that's where you're having more than 10 bowel movements per day. Um, you're having continuous bleeding, um, potentially you're having a risk of toxicity. You're having a lot of, uh, abdominal tenderness at this point, um, which that wasn't present before, um, Patients even may require transfusions, um, so the, it's it's a lot more of like a medical emergency at that point, and that's where we'll talk in you know at the end towards like about uh, steroids and cyclosporin, some of our hardcore anti-inflammatories that we use. I think it's interesting that they chose the word fulminant. You know, mild, moderate, severe, very standard. You know, classification using threes. There's not too many. You know, there's small, medium, large. Where's the like the the four? You know, mm-hmm. it's not. Yeah, I guess does oh does um does Starbucks have four? Starbucks. You know they've got the they have a tall, tall. grande and a vente. No, no four. I don't think so. If if they, if no they yet, if no they, yet, they, yeti no yeti if they have I mean, maybe they do if I they have a up. fourth size that I have not known about and I'm stuck getting a venti like a child. <laughs> I'm gonna be very disappointed. Like a doofus like a doofus. I could have had the giant cup, big gulps. I like giant. Yeah. Which, yeah. Venti than giant. Um, you want to okay start on drugs? Let's do it. Okay, start from the very way back when. Way back when, earliest iterations of drugs for UC, other than nicotine. Um, so there's uh, the um, aminosalicylate class. So we'll start with sulfasalazine, which you're 
probably familiar with and have seen uh, re- relatively commonly. So sulfoxalazine contains a sulfonamide moiety, uh, which is sulfapyridine, and also mesalamine, so 5-ASA, which you, you have seen mesalamine um, um, referred to that way. So what happens with sulfoxalazine when you take it? It's cleaved by gut bacteria in the colon to sulfapyridine. Um, it's absorbed and excreted in the urine. That's what sulfapyridine is. And then mesalamine is what mostly remains in the colon. So mesalamine is kind of the, the active component that you're getting there. What it does is basically scavenges free radicals and other um, inflammatory mediators and decreases inflammation. So that's the whole point of it. Um, some of those mediators are um, uh, TNF-alpha. It inhibits leukocyte motility. Um, it transforms growth factor B, nuclear factor kappa B, kappa beta, I should say, um, suppresses interleukins, um, affects leukotrienes, prostaglandins, all that stuff. So it can do a lot of things, um, but basically it's decreasing inflammation. So it is contraindicated because of its sulfamoiety if you have a sulf allergy, um, but also if you have a salicylate allergy and if you have a GI obstruction. Um, it can cause SJS, so warn people about a rash. Um, you want to monitor um, CBC and LFTs because you can have um, hepatic injury. It can also cause pulmonary fibrosis as well. Um, other adverse effects that might be more common, headache, um, dyspepsia. It can also affect folate. You can have a folate deficiency. You want to watch out for this one in pregnancy. Uh, it can also cause a yellow-orange discoloration of the skin or urine. So, you know, people in trivia nights like to ask about drugs that can discolor the skin or urine. Sulfasalazine is one of those. We're big trivia night guys when the topic is pharmacology. We do trivia all the time. Do you? No. Oh, okay. Right on. You know what would be cool, though? I was going to say, thanks for inviting us to trivia. Live, live podcast at a uh, trivia night. Ah. Uh. Yeah. Six people will be tuned in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, they'll be there for the trivia. They're trying to play trivia. We're in there talking about drugs. They're like, can you guys shut up yeah. so I can hear the questions? We're trying we'll to just, answer this we'll question just ask about questions. the movie We Elf. will be the trivia. Mm. We'll ask questions in, in the middle. Maybe we should do that on all our podcasts. Man, yeah. maybe. It'll either go really well or we won't have a single listener left. But it'll be fun. Maybe. <laughs> maybe uh, not. All right, worth it. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, so that's sulfasalazine, but then there's also other mesalamine drugs, mesalamine-related drugs. Mesalamine enema, um, which is Rowasa. There's Canasa, mesalamine suppository, and Pentasa, mesalamine ER. They all sound like lions from The Lion King. Um, uh, Pentassa releases mesalamine from the duodenum to the ileum with up to 59% of the drug passing into the colon. And we'll kind of go through what situations you would use these in, but canassa would be proctitis, and then rawasa would be proctosigmoiditis. So it depends on where the inflammation is located. So uh, just to touch on a couple other uh, newer mesalamine derivatives. So we have things like Asacol HD, um, which utilizes a uh, pH-dependent coating um, that basically helps to release the medication at a specific area in the intestine by um, recognizing it, you know, the changes in intestinal pH uh, as you go down the, the GI tract. Um, the mesalamine ER capsules, um, which is also a pH-dependent um, coating, and uh, that one is going to be more so uh, associated with um, treating ulcerative colitis because it, it does a good job of kind of staying in uh, the the colon itself um, and not releasing a lot of the mesalamine in the small intestines where in ulcerative colitis you don't really need that benefit. Um, so Lialda, the other good thing is, is you can dose it once a day. 
um, which, and we get into the, the dosing strategies, we'll see that they do recommend if you are going to use misalamine to do it once a, once a day, if possible. Um, we also have uh, another enteric coated version um, that's misalamine granules that have like this polymer matrix um, that cause the delayed deli- delayed delivery to the colon. So again, this is an option for ulcerative colitis specifically, uh, and it's also once daily dosing. So the if you are going to be insurance is no option, your cost is no option, you're just focused on the ease of dose um, and, and increasing adherence that way, then Lialda and Aprezia is probably the two best options for ulcerative colitis. Um, you're also getting the same, like that activity where you want it to be like mostly in the colon, you're not getting it in the small intestine um, and, and all that good stuff. Um, a couple other ones we have, uh, we have things like bel salazide, um, which is just another version. It's it's a derivative of one of our five ASAs. Um, and we have uh, old salazine as well. Uh, that one, the one caveat to that is you have to take it with food um, to increase uh, absorption and help with some of the GI side effects. Um, when it comes to all of the different uh, formulations of these five uh, five ASA derivatives, um, we have to one watch for uh, adverse effects and buildup and toxicities in patients that have renal or hepatic impairment. Um, we have to watch for certain uh, hypersensitivity reactions, including things that can cause, you know, myocarditis or, or pericarditis as well, um, organ damage specifically. Um, and then from a, just a general adverse effect standpoint that we would be pretty confident we're going to see in a lot of patients would be just things like the nausea, um, flatulence, belching, things like that. Um, so nothing too crazy on the common side effects, but, you know, just to be aware of that. You don't want to have a patient start these and then be like, no idea why they're having so much gas. So balsalazide, it has two brand names. For the tablets, it's Giazzo or mm-hmm. Giazzo. For the capsules, it's Colazzle. Colazzle. I'm not quite sure what the marketing team was thinking there because they're not small capsules and they're called Colazzle capsules. I don't think that there's anybody who's going to want to take the Colossal capsules. You know what I'm saying? Unless you're trying to flex. Unless you're trying to flex, you're like, yeah, look at this giant you know, capsule. These I can guys, what do you see? My... They're like, look how, look at, look what a big capsule I can swallow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my intestines hurt a lot, but <laughs> look know. at the size of this capsule. I have a feeling those didn't sell too well. Um, so we talked about side of action with these because it does matter um, uh, where the inflammation is taking place. It matters between UC and Crohn's, and it also matters within UC for what medications you can use. Um, so if the inflammation is located primarily in the rectum, then a suppository might be good there. And once we get to the end, we'll, right now we're just talking about all the drugs. We'll talk about kind of um, where the guidelines will point you towards therapy in general. But still, when you're thinking from a physiologic standpoint, in the rectum, you're thinking suppository. It's pretty obvious, right? Um, if it's located in the rectum and the distal colon, so the, the close side, I guess, or far side, depending on which way you're looking, um, an enema, from a salamine or an enema from a steroid. So enemas are effective there. Uh, proximal colon, Eprizo, Balsalazide, Lialda, um, Olsalazine, those are all options that we just mentioned that would kind of hit those three th- three options. Now, if you're getting farther into the terminal ileum, um, Asacol is really the only one that hits that um, for UC. And then Pentassa can hit the whole site, right? So it, it goes can, all the way through the small intestine. <laughs> all the way through. So terminal ileum, ileum, and jejunum, pentassa. 
So uh, the way I kind of think about it is like the Asacol and the Pentaza were originally more so probably for a Crohn's type situation. The problem is they've kind of fallen out of favor with Crohn's, spoiler alert. Um, and, you know, when it comes to like, let's say the site of like the, the site of activities mostly in the rectum or the distal colon, the, and we'll see when we talk about the, the treatment algorithm, but we actually do prefer, um, like for instance, in the distal colon, um, to use the enema by itself as opposed to using the oral therapy. Because at first we kind of intuitively would say, well, the oral therapy, you'll you'll get you know action to the, wherever the site is. The problem is that mesalamine is not getting absorbed, so you're just kind of releasing some of the drug throughout the intestine. So ideally we want to release it right and kind of concentrate it as best we can at the site where the the inflammation, all that's happening. So if you start releasing, like, for instance, the acetal at the, you know, almost a little past the ilium, at the terminal ilium, and the proximal colon, before you even hit the distal colon, you've given away half of the concentration of the drug. And it's not really half. It's, that's a number I made up. But you've given away a con- certain percentage of the drug concentration um, of that mesalamine. So now you're not getting the same effects. So we do try to target. Now, once you get past the proximal colon, that's when you start going more systemic. Right. So just right. to throw that out there. Yeah. I like that chart a lot. If you guys, if you guys have access to the uh, Depiros Pharmacotherapy, check out the uh, and their inflammatory bowel disease. They have the site of action for the mesalamines. It's a pretty cool little diagram. I like it. Yeah, simple but effective. Very, very effective. So yeah, so steroids would be um, another option that you're going to see thrown out there a lot, and another oldie. Um, and we all know what steroids do. They modulate the immune system. They're going to inhibit the production of certain inflammatory mediators because the focus is all on inflammation. Um, they can interrupt cytokine release, uh, decrease leukotrienes, prostaglandins, superoxide production, all the good stuff. Um, so corticosteroid options, when you're thinking of these GI disorders, you're usually thinking budesonide. Budesonide is pretty common. Um, so there is a budesonide with MMX technology, which might might be able to to speak to a little bit better than me, but it's called Eucerus. Um, it would be used in a more extensive disease throughout the, the whole of the small intestine and rectum area. Um, it's a nine milligram extended release tablet only for UC. It releases in the colon. Um, it's a once daily, but only for eight weeks for active disease. So not necessarily for remission. There's also a Eucerus foam. Um, the foam would be used in proctosigmoiditis or proctitis. So something that's more you know, um, more specific to that portion of the side of action. It's not as effective as mesalamine. This uh, budesonide is not. You'll also see prednisone used. Usually it's in doses of 40 to 60 milligrams per day. Um, it can be used for patients with moderate to moderate extensive disease who are refractory to the five ASAs, um, or if they require more rapid control of symptoms, you might see the steroids used. So that MMX is basically just, and I had to look this up because after you put me on blast, I was like, mm. I figured I was like, he either knows or he doesn't. I, so yeah, I was about to just make some stuff up. But I was, I was like, like, I'll oh, talk just, for an extra like 15 yeah, seconds no, and let perfect. him look it up. So this is why we, we've been working together for a while now. So he knows like my face when I'm like, I'm, he knows when I'm about to start making stuff up. <laughs> and so that's, he knows to keep going. And now I have actual data in front of me. <laughs> um, so it's the, it stands for uh, the, the multi-matrix. Um, and it's, it's basically just the, the lipophilic matrix that allows for a um, dis- the, this, the delivery of the, of the drug itself to a specific spot in the GI tract. Um, and so that's why, like, specifically they use the eucerus and ulcerative colitis, and then the, there's a different version that they have that gets released um, in the small intestine area for Crohn's. Um, but they're, they're actually using the same technology to try to uh, – 
which I wasn't aware of this until five seconds ago, but um, they're using the same technology to try to work on things like a, uh, there's a rifamycin um, antibiotic that they're, that they're testing now with um, that MMX thing to see if they can use it for things like traveler's diarrhea and nice. whatnot to try to get the, the delivery of that actual drug antibiotic to the site of action where the infection is. So Man, MM, I, I MMX. Could, I could, it sounds cool. Sounds intense. It sounds like, sounds a, like a back flip on a dirt bike. I was going to say dirt yeah. bike. Probably because they call that Moto X. It would be my or BMX. I guess that's not the motorized no. bike. The one with the cool pegs and stuff. Man, I could use that urethromycin thing when I was in South Africa. Mm. Don't leave your mouth open in the shower because you will have a terrible afternoon <laughs> and night and night and oh. the following day. Yeah. <laughs> it was terrible. And you'll have to take it, bro. Um, okay, so yeah, corticosteroids. We are familiar with these adverse effects, but acutely you might see increased appetite and weight gain. I guess that might not be super acute, but you can have emotional instability or um, mood changes, right? So you've heard people describe that. Trouble sleeping, GI upset. Uh, long term, if you have to use these for long term, which uh, patients with these in these situations have been known to do, you can have adrenal suppression, um, immunosuppression, and impaired wound healing. Increased blood pressure, increased blood glucose, osteoporosis, um, and also edema from sodium retention as well. All right. So all we've gotten through is mild to moderate. We have so much to go. So strap (laughs) in, people. Get ready. Um, Yeah, my PA students loved me today. (laughs) I was going through this. I just looked out of the sea of just like angry faces. I was going through this. I was like, oh, boy, it's going to be a mutiny here in a minute. (laughs) Um, So mild to moderate ulcerative colitis. Um, These are just some clips from the the actual treatment guidelines from the – these are from the American – no, the American Gastroenterology Academy, I believe. Mm -hmm. Um, Which is – AGA, AGA and not AGIA, which I would have thought it would yeah. be. Well, I or was, AGEA getting, I, I was getting them confused with uh, the ACG, the American College of Gastroenterology. So those are just, th- those are just, those people are in college. These people are in the academy. Ooh, it's a big difference. That sounds European. <laughs> yeah, they haven't asked me to join yet though, so I don't know. I'm still waiting on that invitation. <laughs> um, okay, so mild to moderate ulcerative colitis. These are just clips in the guidelines. So they do say if a patient has extensive disease, and in, in other words, it's going up, you know, through the past the distal um, colon into the proximal colon, um, they want you to use standard dose oral mesalamine. So when they say standard dose, they're typically meaning about two to three grams of the mesalamine daily, um, or one of the dia. Um, diazo bonded five um, ASAs. So that's going to be like the um, the uh, belsalazide. Um, and so they recommend those options because they're more effective than using either a low-dose mesalamine orally, which that was a thing for a while. They were trying to limit the dose exposure and all that. That might be an option once you've kind of got the symptoms under control and you're in remission. But when you first have a flare-up, they want you to use two to three grams of the mesalamine it works better than the low-dose mesalamine. It also works better than the original sulfasalazine, which is trash. Um, unless the patient is using like that as an adjunct therapy in like rheumatoid arthritis or something like that, you, you don't want to start messing up those issues. You know, so you know, keep that in mind. Um, it's also more effective than the budesonide, MMX, that we just talked, spent so much time talking about. So BMX? Turn, yeah. It turns out it's not even that good. Um, the other thing that they'd recommend, I said this earlier, was the once-daily dosing um, instead of the multiple doses per day just to increase adherence so the Lialda and the apresia the two that have the once daily dosing option um just as far as the package insert goes 
Um, the other thing is if a patient has extensive um, or even uh, left-sided disease, they do want you to use the oral um, mesalamine at the standard dose. However, they also want you to add on rectal mesalamine um, therapy as well, most likely the enema um, if the person can, can tolerate it. Not everyone's going to be super thrilled about starting a rectal administration of anything, um, but the combo of the rectal mesalamine and the oral mesalamine does seem to be more effective than the monotherapy options. So again, that's extensive um, as well as left-sided disease. So distal um, only or at least in distal and proximal, you're going to use both for sure. Yeah. Refractory, if the combo does not work um, or the monotherapy that the person refuses the combo is not working, um, then you're still having symptoms. You could potentially add on um, either an oral prednisone regimen or the budesonide MMX at that point um, and then hopefully get the person into remission that way. So that's extensive disease. So for mild to moderate um, disease that is not extensive, so it's more localized to a specific portion, uh, like proctosigmoiditis, um, the mesalamine enemas are more effective than oral mesalamine. So similar to what he just mentioned and similar to what he mentioned before, um, more targeted therapy is more effective than the oral mesalamine. Um, their mesalamine enemas are also more effective than rectal corticosteroids. So those are targeted, but the mesalamine enema is more effective than the rectal corticosteroids. In just proctitis, um, Mesalamine suppositories are more effective than oral mesalamine, so the, the targeted approach. Um, they are also more effective than rectal corticosteroids. So that's what you would want to go first line. Uh, if patients are intolerant of or refractory to the rectal mesalamine, um, that's when you would consider one of the rectal corticosteroids. Um, oral mesalamine or an oral corticosteroid um, if it would be used if the rectal corticosteroids are not preferred for some reason. So um, hopefully you can convince... Some reason. I can't put my finger on it. <laughs> not sure why people wouldn't want to stick things in their... It's just a behind. foam. Just put, just apply it, dude. <laughs> just apply it. Yeah, that's all you got to do. You can, you can just... Um, no, nah, never mind. I'm going to get way too inappropriate. The thing about Cole is he's constantly saying that it's inappropriate. I'm going to tell your wife. I have to, wa I have to watch Wait till Anna hears about this. In my mind, it's funny, and then if I'm going to say it, <laughs> not funny. It's good you have that filter, though. That's something I'm working on. Sometimes. <laughs> only only when the mic is in front of me. <laughs> only when I know this is going to be on, on the internet forever. <laughs> yeah. So um, I, I kind of have a, a chart, which I know you can't see, so it doesn't do you too much good. Um, but I made a, a chart, so if you want to uh, kind of – this is just my version of those guidelines put into picture form because I need to see things in picture form because I can't read words good. Uh, so if you, if you, uh, if you want to see that, I definitely will share. I'll probably end up putting it on Instagram or something like that. If I, I'll reformat it a little bit. So you made this? That's, yeah. Oh, nice. Yep. I made that. Looks, looks cool, doesn't it? You can tell yeah. I made it if you look at it closely because some of the squares and it's stuff It's aesthetically are pleasing. The, the arrows are all the same size. Yeah. The, that part I just caught, I just duplicated them. Uh, I did it on After Effects. Copy paste. You know, oh, After Effects. Which yeah. is totally not what that, that's for. I'm supposed <laughs> to be doing like high core an like yeah. animations and stuff. I'm making stupid but you used to. We've got, that's, you know. Yeah, that's where I got my start. Yeah. Tons of YouTube videos available. So if you guys want to see that, I'll, I can send it to you for sure. I'll, I'll probably end up putting it on social media at some point. All right. Let's jump into the more hardcore agents. Yeah. Um, do you want me to start? Go for it. So these are the immunosuppressive agents. Um, we'll talk about the theopurines first. And anytime you're talking about something that suppresses the immune system, kind of like corticosteroids, you're going to have more side effects. Um, so Imuran is the first one. 
generic is azathioprine. So it has a black box warning for chronic immunosuppression um, with an increased risk of malignancy in patients with IBD. So never what you want to see, but anytime you're kind of messing around with the immune system, there can be that risk for cancers, and this one has a black box warning for that. So be aware. Other warnings, um, hematologic toxicities, uh, patients who have a genetic deficiency of theopurine methyltransferase, which is interesting. So they actually recommend testing for TPMT, is what it's called, theopurine methyltransferase, um, before the initial use of either azathioprine or 6-mercaptopurine, which we'll talk about in a second. Also, um, GI side effects, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, which is not ideal in this situation, Um, rash, and um, um, effects on the liver, what you'd want to monitor for. Um, So mercaptopurine is the other option, which is a theopurine. Um, Pretty much everything's the same as azathioprine, but it does not have that black box warning for increased risk of malignancy. So that's good. Um, And this one does need to be taken on an empty stomach. Both have been around for a while, and they um, do kind of have some long-term evidence in Crohn's and UC. So we've seen them all before. All right. So let's talk through some of our biologics. So we have our initial class that we started with, our TNF-alpha inhibitors or antagonists. Um, So like Cole was saying earlier, um, TNF-alpha is a a big uh, inflammatory mediator uh, that kind of plays a role in the uh, pathogenesis of this this uh, disease state. So that's going to be one of the precursors to uh, inducing those pro-inflammatory cytokines like uh, interleukins and whatnot. Um, also with the leukocyte migration, activating neutrophils and eosinophils, all kinds of good stuff. So we can cause a TNF-alpha block. Um, hopefully we can reduce some of that inflammation. So some of the medications you should definitely be aware of, um, and I'm sure you've heard them in other things because you'll see them in psoriasis and other conditions. We have infliximab um, or Remicade, and this is the IV infusion formulation that we have available. Um, you know, we won't go too in depth with this because we've talked about another podcast and whatnot. But um, infusion reactions are somewhat common, and um, the longer the patient uses this, there is a concern about developing like antibodies and things like that to the infusion itself. Um, a lot of times, it's kind of considered to be like the most effective TNF-alpha um, in- inhibitor. And so we also have uh, our Humira, our Adalunumab, um, and then Symponi or Galimibab. <laughs> that's how I say that one. I can never, I, like, regardless of how many times I practice it, that's how you have to say you, it. You just try to say it really fast so we can really hear what you say. Galimibab, also known as Symponi, and like go back to my normal voice. <laughs> but um, no, those are both, both of those are sub-Q injections. And uh I haven't seen as many like head-to-head studies with the Symponi. Um, the Humira has a little bit more um, like randomized control trials and all that stuff like that. So um, the, there's, there is a pretty definitive idea that the infliximab is, is more effective, especially in patients who are treatment naive when it comes to biologics. Um, but we'll get to that in a second. Right, but in the Humira and Symponia, like you mentioned, don't have to be infused, which yes, is nice. Yes, which is definitely nice. You know, I had a professor in pharmacy school, which was a few years ago now. I had who, a couple of them, too. I had a couple, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sorry. I, um, I think it was for, like, our patho class or something. He was a guest professor, and he was doing research with TNF-alpha. And um, I guess this, these were around, but I guess not as prevalent. And so he was he talked a lot about it and i had no idea what it was of course but i, I remember because every answer to his questions on the test were like tnf alpha as long as you chose that answer then you would be correct 
Um, but he was onto something because there's these drugs are used in a lot of things. One of my professors was the guy that like invented or like at least was in the lab that invented Lipitor, wasn't there? Uh, maybe. I can't remember which one that was. It was one of the uh, farm cam or med cam. Really? Guys, I'm pretty. I mean, unless I'm just making that memory up, I don't know. I feel like that's a It'd real be an thing. odd memory to make up. It would be. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that's. I'm pretty confident. That's Must accurate. be true. All right. So adverse effects. Yeah, adverse effects. So kind of um, things with TNF alpha that we have to watch out for. Anytime you have these MABs, you're going to have a fair amount of adverse effects to be aware of. Infections are common. A common side effect of of um, of these medications increased risk for infection, worsening heart failure, rash, headache. Um, increased risk of lymphomas, so again, that malign- malignancy risk, um, and also neutropenia. Um, serious infections um, are an increased risk, so like TB, you have to have a negative TB test, and you want to monitor that periodically, and if you have latent TB, um, you need to treat that before initiating treatment, so they have to fail a TB test before starting these. Invasive fungal infections and other opportunistic infections um, can't happen, so things to monitor for. Have we done the episode on the latent, the new latent TB treatment guidelines? Definitely done a TB episode, but oh, anytime I feel like we just did something, it was years ago. So yeah, yeah, okay, probably not. Well, we'll talk about that after <laughs> after we get done recording. All there right, that, I like to make you guys at home feel like you're a part of the conversation because so. you are a part of the yeah, conversation, big time. That's why we do it because no one else listens to us. <laughs> um, integrin receptor antagonist, so the vedolizumab or Intivio. Um, this is also an IV formulation that is approved for both Crohn's and ulcerative colitis. Uh, one thing is if a patient does not have any sort of uh, improvement in symptoms after week 14, um, do ahead and discontinue because most likely at that point it's not going to be efficacious in that patient. Um, infusion reactions, uh, increased risk of infections, and increased risk of liver injury are all things to watch out for. Not super common, but definitely things to watch out for. Um, making sure the patient has their vaccines that they need, especially live vaccines, because you don't want to put uh, give them a live vaccine while they're um, on this medication. Um, adverse effects that are a little bit more common, uh, headache, nasopharyngitis, erythalgia, um, and uh, monitoring-wise, just watching the liver, um, keeping track of any kind of like neurological symptoms, um, any uh, you know routine TB screenings and things like that. Um, but yeah, definitely uh, an option that we'll see uh, when we get to the, the treatment algorithm. So if anyone's wondering, we talked about TB over two years ago, which of course time flies, but this was one of my favorites because you entitled it Rifampin, Isoniazid, and Tuberculosis. Oh my. <laughs> what a stupid title. <laughs> I do it's, remember I do remember doing that though. Remember coming up with that and you were like, man, that's like, a great title. It was title. probably like 2.30 in the morning. I was like, that sounds awesome. <laughs> and in the morning I was like, oh no, what have I done? <laughs> Yeah. It's too late now. Usually I, I just like, I, I've gotten out of like trying to be creative because mm-hmm. I realize I'm just not good at that thing. And I just like, these are the Kodago guidelines. You know, if we, um, if we were smart, we'd run some type of metric comparing like a clever uh, title to just a regular title and mm-hmm. see if we get any more hits, but we don't. That'd be an easy glance at the stats. Probably. Um, so, okay. So next is Stolara Ustakinumab. Um, this is an anti-interleukin 12 and 23 antibody. It can be given IV, but also sub-Q. Um, so what it does, it blocks the activity of IL-12 and IL-23, of course, um, by attaching and inhibiting to the receptors for those cytokines on T-cells, natural killer cells, and antigen-presenting cells. Um, similar increased risk for those serious infections. You want to have the negative TB test, and you've got to treat TB before if you have a positive uh, latent TB test. 
All right. So this is the drug that uh, I don't even want to talk about this drug. I don't like this drug. You don't like it? I'm not a big fan of Zeljans. It's the oral option, right? Nah, it's stupid. I think they're coming out with some new. Um, I think they're coming out with a new Jack. Um, I yeah, I don't. I don't even think it's for this, but yeah, I think they're coming out with a new one. Hopefully, it's as crappy as this one. <laughs> so we have our uh, our Janus kinase enzyme inhibitor, um, or our uh, Zeljans, the brand name. Um, this is going to. Uh, carry multiple black box warnings, including serious uh, infection risk, uh, tuberculosis, fungal, viral, bacterial, uh, and then also increased risk of lymphoma. So you got all that good stuff to worry about. Um, you also have to potentially worry about a GI perforation. Um, always good. Increased LFTs. Uh, it hasn't been studied in patients that have a baseline creatinine clearance less than 40 mils per minute. You have to avoid live vaccines, obviously. And then... Uh, Adverse effects. Let's ha- let's talk about some more infections: upper respiratory tract infections, urinary tract infections, tons of diarrhea, headache, hypertension, increased lipids. Yeah, sorry Pfizer, if you're listening. <laughs> is that who makes uh, Zelgens? It is. Yeah. Now, no. <laughs> sorry guys, we like Pfizer for some most of their stuff, just not this one. Yeah. Um, Good vaccine. This one, Prevnar. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, we have a couple. We have a old friend of ours that works for Pfizer, so she's gonna give us crap now. <laughs> Sorry, Katie. Um, all right. So some things, if you do put a patient on this, one, um, I, I do believe it has been cleared FDA-wise now to give this an ulcerative colitis. However, I, um, you have to have a patient uh, fail um, a TNF-alpha inhibitor before putting them on this. Um, and the data is a little bit, eh. So monitoring-wise... Um, Mike's just poo-poo on all the drugs today. Just this one, especially. Because <laughs> the same thing with uh, in rheumatoid arthritis. Like, uh-huh. it's just nowhere near as good as a lot of the other options. Right. Yeah. Again, you know, it is what it is. I'm just, I'm, I don't make this stuff up. I'm just reading, I'm just reading data. <laughs> um, monitoring CBC lipids at baseline. Um, typically going to check them again 48 weeks later. Um, and then potentially monitoring every three months while they're on... Uh, therapy, uh, LFTs at baseline, and then periodically based on your best clinical judgment. Um, patients that are of Asian descent do have uh, an increased frequency of adverse effects. So, you know, I'm using some caution in that patient population. Just at least give them a heads up of some of the, you know, adverse effects and all that. Um, there's two different formulations. There's a, a twice daily formulation that's the five milligrams twice a day, and there's also a, an XR version once a day that's 11 milligrams. Uh, if you do decide to switch over to the extended release, um, if you've been on five milligrams twice a day, you basically just the next you finish your your complete day of the five milligrams, and the next morning instead of taking an additional five milligrams, you just start the eleven milligrams and go from there. So pretty easy. And then uh, it is a uh, a sip or um, a sip three a four substrate. So watch out for inducers, inhibitors, um, as well as sip three two C nineteen inhibitors as well. And then the cost, uh, we'll say high. It is high. Pricey. Now, I have a caveat, because if you Talk go back and listen to our episode from two years ago, I'm sure we were talking about these expensive drugs and about the prices and how like you know, people can't really use them because they're expensive. I've changed my tune. Okay. Don't be afraid of the prices. Because they're so... They're never. Under any circumstances. Under any circumstances. Don't even look at the price. If you want to use the drug try it, as long as you have a team who can follow up on it. So now that I work in the space with insurance companies, a lot of the times, really, if you have tried the appropriate therapies beforehand, you can give it get it covered in a lot of instances. And if not, the or even if you get it covered with a high copay, a lot of times, almost all the time, there is some sort of copay assistance through the manufacturer that can get them this medication for a while. And if it's not covered, 
or they're uninsured, then almost all the time there's a patient assistance program that you can apply for them for through the manufacturer to get them free drug. Yes. You can get these drugs for people. You can. Cole's definitely right. And this we, is, we do a would, lot of this with like Hep C and, and even like things like Trulicity. We have a lot of patients that use their yeah. assistant patient Lily assistance cares. program. So that, that was eye-opening for, eye for me. Yeah, and, and he's 100% right. There's a lot of different options. Now, the other piece of that puzzle is, like he said, making sure you have a team that can actually do it. Cole right. also works with about 800 million PharmDs. Right. He has an army of people that are just like assassins when it comes to finding deals on drugs. So, so. I'll say that if, if you're really intent on getting this drug for someone, yeah. you can probably get it for them. Call us, and we'll do it for up cost. Yeah. <laughs> I was about to say, you can we say will for show free. you where to go. Our fee is reasonable, though. Um, cyclosporin, uh, we, we've talked about this one before, so we won't go into too many details, but obviously uh, it can help um, from the inflammatory standpoint, especially uh, in a patient, inpatient with you know severe cases. Uh, we can potentially use this uh, refractory to steroids. Uh, in short term, obviously we can kind of get the inflammation under control, but it's also been shown to reduce the risk of a patient needing a um, colectomy after um, failing corticosteroids. Uh, however, we do have to watch the nephrotoxicity risk and neurotoxicity risk as well. So just careful monitoring with that one and usually temporary. Yep. Sorry, I'm going to caveat my previous statement a little bit because it's mainly for these really new ones. Yeah. As they get closer to the end of the patent, a lot of times there's less options that the manufacturer is going to give. And of course, once the patent runs out, there's virtually no options that the manufacturer is going to give. But if it's a new drug in the first few years, there's a lot of options. I think that was the caveat to your original caveat. Yeah. It's a post postscript. It was a double caveat. Yeah. Does that reverse itself? I don't know. Is it an anti caveat? I don't think it's like math. <laughs> it's not like math. It's not like math. Good. Yeah, definitely. Um, All right. So this is the the actual statements from the guidelines. Um, in the umbrella, I'll start with the umbrella term. When it comes to moderate to or not the umbrella term, the umbrella the umbrella recommendation. Moderate to severe ulcerative colitis treatment, and this is talking about like induction therapy. Um, if the patient's being treated in the outpatient setting, they recommend using a biologic plus an, an immunosuppressive agent um, based on the results of the UC success trial. Um, and when they say biologic, obviously they mean TNF-alpha antagonist, they mean the uh, Intivio, um, they mean the um, Eustachinumab. I've messed this up all during my class too. Eustachinumab. <laughs> I, I literally, I told them like eight times and I said it wrong each time, like an idiot. Um, so that stupid drug, the Stelera, that I now hate because I can't pronounce. Um, <laughs> It's a good drug. It is a good drug. I'm just kidding. Sorry, Stelera. Um, plus azathioprine or the mercaptopurine, so one of the immunosuppressive agents. Um, that being said, they do give a kind of like a sub um, recommendation underneath that where they get a little bit more specific. Uh, and this is obviously if you have all the options available to you and you can kind of pick. Uh, if the patient is treatment naive when it comes to biologic agents, then they recommend starting with infliximab um, or the... Uh, vitalizumab, the Intivia. Uh, those are the preferred biologic agents according to the guidelines in naive patients who have not used biologic treatment. I also would like to point out that the uh, when they list all the different options for biologic, Zelgen is nowhere to be seen. Just throwing that out there. Just I had you know I don't, I don't, I don't make I don't make the rules, <laughs> and then uh, I just report in the world around me. Um, if the patient has previously been on infliximab. They don't mention any of the other TNF-alpha inhibitors. They just say infliximab. 
then when they start off, so this is, would basically be a situation where they had an, an induction therapy with infliximab in the past. They got to remission. Then they had a flare-up again. So they, you, know, you look in the chart. They had infliximab last time. They recommend using the uh, Stelare. I'm not even going to try to pronounce it anymore. I'm done. I guess I almost consider that a fail failure of therapy, but... I wonder if there's some sort of, I'm sure there's not like a resistance or something. I'm interested to know why. I don't know. I'll look into it later. But There, there was, a, I think it was, a, I don't remember the exact study, but I want to say it was a study and they just saw better results with that, um, with in patients who had been previously on infliximab. Okay. Um, so, yeah, I don't, I hope that's as accurate as I can get. I'm going to say that that's, we'll put that's that, the, that's we'll put that in the quotes of, that's probably correct. <laughs> probably correct. Again, level of evidence. Yeah. To, to be. <laughs> to be or not to be. Yeah. Level, level of evidence. Ugh. That's Corvino's level of evidence where he just doesn't check and he just says things because he's tired at 8 o'clock at night. We've really dragged out these last few slides. <laughs> I know. I'm sorry. All right. Well, that's my fault. It's not your fault. It is totally your fault, Cole. <laughs> Finally, he admits it. Um, if the patient is only willing to accept monotherapy. So this again, induction, outpatient therapy. Um, if only willing to accept monotherapy, they do prefer a biologic over an immunosuppressive agent. If they can't afford a biologic or don't have access to it, then obviously immunosuppressive agent like the thiopurine is the one that they're going to go with because that's better than nothing. So goes combo, then biologic monotherapy if that's the combo is not an option. And then if that's not an option, you give them the thiopurine and cross your fingers and hope it works. So that's induction therapy. Mm -hmm. So like we said, with UC, there's induction, then there's a remission phase that you have to treat. The guidelines don't make... Um, uh, as specific a recommendation in favor of or against biologic monotherapy over the theopurine monotherapy for maintenance of remission. Um, there's not really any clinical trials comparing combination therapy with biologic monotherapy for maintenance of remission. Um, there was one French study with 82 patients reminiscent of the nicotine studies from the, from the 90s. Um, pretty low quality evidence, but they did show um, it was kind of a retrospective study um, in remission on combination therapy. It did suggest continuing combination infliximab and azathioprine was superior than de-escalating the infliximab monotherapy. Um, but if it's not a clear benefit, I can I can definitely see some benefits to de-escalating. Yeah. So last little bit. Um, I'm glad you guys are still with us. Hopefully, um, either that or you're listening to something different by now. <laughs> Uh, moderate to severe treatment in patients who are hospitalized. So this is back to the induction phase. So this is patients who are no longer being treated outpatient. These are ones that are actually inpatient. Um, we typically are going to start with IV methylprednisolone um, or a dose equivalent corticosteroid of 40 to 60 milligrams per day uh, of methylprednisolone, whatever that equals out to with you know whatever other agent you're going to use, hydrocortisone or um, prednisolone or whatever. Um, if that is not enough to kind of get the inflammation and the symptoms that, um, you know, bring them into at least moving them towards remission, um, then uh, patients will have the option of either infliximab um, or cyclosporin. That's where the cyclosporin kind of kind of comes into play. Um, infliximab will be, in this case, sometimes given at higher doses for these hospitalized patients. Um, the guidelines mention it, but they don't specifically advocate one way or the other. They just kind of mention that sometimes they use higher doses, but they can't definitively say the evidence is good enough to pick one or the other. Um, then once the patient is discharged, um, then you basically treat them like you would in the outpatient setting, um, depending on what they've been on so far. And then once they're in remission, we de-escalate to either the biologic by itself or the immunosuppressive therapy, either one, pick your poison, and go from there. And that is UC. 
Thank you who stayed, for those of you who stayed to the end. I think most of our listeners do. You know, we, maybe if we gave them a reason, like a giveaway, give a, you know, like a, we, there's gonna be a special code. We're gonna give you two free monsters if you Ooh, stay no, till the end. No, I need those. Can't, can't can't give those away. You have to go to the store and buy your own monster, like an adult. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I'll post those uh, algorithms that I made. Uh, I say algorithms; they're just like these little, very simple um, infographics. But I'll put those up and see what you guys think. I'm actually kind of curious to see. It, what people think about them. Simple is definitely better. Yeah. I prefer simple. For sure. You know, I, I mean, it's nice sometimes to have the algorithms with all the caveats in the bottom right in the little teeny letters. And other times, but other you're times just it's trying just, to get through your day. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, we'll post those. But anything else, man? Anything else we got to do? All I got to do. So thank you guys so much for listening. I know that was our longer one today. I hope that was helpful. Um, if you know, you guys have any questions, concerns, want to say that we messed up anything, by all means, please send us an email. Um, you can also reach us on any of the social media platforms. Cole, don't hit your mic right now. We made it through an entire episode. Jeez, Literally let me right do my outro. End. And uh, so thank you guys so much, though. And um, if you can text us directly, um, if you send a text to area code 415-943-6116, get an automated response back, and then I'll get back to you as quick as I can after that. Um, also too, if you haven't checked out the app clubhouse, definitely recommend that. Um, it's a very cool app where you can kind of listen to people discuss random topics in real time. Um, and there's all kinds of nerd stuff out there. You can listen to, uh, politics, science, all kinds of different stuff. But, um, there's a lot of farmers, especially like in the Charleston area that I know that have been big on that. And, uh, they're doing like certain like med talk rooms and things like that. So I haven't told, this is Cole's just finding out about this, but, um, we need to probably, look at uh doing some kind of a live room like that it'd be kind of cool but so maybe that's in the future so if you like uh clubhouse and you're having fun with that let us know and we'll try to go some uh, something on that route so there you go thank you guys so much y'all have a great night